0: Hello and welcome to Across the States. I'm your host, Matt Fisher. And today joining us in studio are Carly Good, Alec Task Force Director for Energy, Environment, and Agriculture, and Michael Jewell, who's a board member at the Conservative Energy Network and a sector board member of the Texas Conservative Coalition Research Institute. And today we're gonna to be discussing the recent energy crisis in Texas and how lawmakers can learn and grow their states from that. So Michael, welcome to Out Across the States. How are you doing today? Doing great, Matt. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us. Now, I have been looking forward to this discussion. I know you're right now in sunny, beautiful Texas. We're in Washington, D.C. It's still pretty chilly up here. Hopefully, not only can we get some of that warmth and some of that you know, better weather, but also you can provide us with some insight about the Texas energy crisis. So just for some background for our listeners, let's set the stage and delve into what happened there in the Lone Star State. Now, How is Texas different from every other state when it comes to providing energy, electricity and power to its people?
1: Great question. And and I think that there's a couple of different ways that are are real important and have been getting a lot of attention over the, the last couple of weeks. The first one is Texas is an island from an electrical perspective. In the United States, you really have three grids. There's the Eastern Interconnect, there's the Western Interconnect, and then there's ERCOT that is located all within Texas and stands on its own. There are some minor connections between ERCOT and the different interconnections as well as Mexico, but by and large, we are responsible for generating all the electricity that we need within ERCOT by ourselves. The other key difference from a lot of the rest of the nation is ERCOT has what's called an energy-only market. And what that means is that Generators get paid for providing electricity only when they are generating. And so if you're not generating, then you are not earning money. In other states, you do have what's called a capacity market and, you know, in different flavors of that. But the bottom line idea there is that generators get paid a certain amount in order to be there regardless of whether they're needed or not and there's clearly a cost that's associated with that and ERCOT hasn't gone down that way I mean we are much more of a free market approach of pay for performance period.
2: So as we all know beginning on February 10th of this year three severe storms hit the Lone Star State and four and a half million Americans lost power what happened what went wrong in Texas?
1: Pretty much everything that could go wrong did go wrong. The way that the storms uh, hit just kind of caused a cascading series of problems. And frankly, every generation resource in the state, as well as the transmission grid itself, ended up running into problems. The first storms that came in, they brought what was called freezing fog. I didn't know it was a thing until recently.
0: That is a horror film concept right there. That <laughs> it is... is a horror
1: film concept, and, and it is anathema <laughs> to anything that doesn't want ice on it. But clearly, the problem that ended up happening is you got ice on wind turbines, ice on solar panels, ice on the gas production facilities, ice on generating resources, ice on all the trees as well. It was ice everywhere. And then what you had is you had these series of additional storms that came in, bringing increasing cold and staying for much longer than anything down here is, is really built for. Texas is fundamentally, you know, from an electricity perspective, we think about Texas as a uh, summer peaking system. That's where the system is under the most stress. This winter in February, we suddenly looked like a winter peaking system and that is not what we're built for. And unfortunately, the results you know, ended up with four and a half million people that were without power.
2: So in the aftermath of this crisis, we heard a lot of talking heads in the media, across the political sphere, casting blame and pointing fingers. What are some of the biggest misconceptions about the Texas energy crisis that really need to be talked about and addressed?
1: So I think the first misconception is that only one person is to blame. That is not true. You know, every generation resource had its problems. Clearly, the ice adversely impacted wind turbines. Ice and snow adversely impacted solar. Ice impacted gas production facilities and the pipelines. The cold weather adversely impacted all thermal resources and their ability to operate in the cold. The cold weather even adversely impacted coal by freezing the, the coal piles. It adversely impacted nuclear power. We lost the South Texas nuclear project because of problems from a water pump. Everybody has blame. In the transmission grid itself, there were limitations that were showing up in the transmission grid where wind and solar were generating, and they couldn't get their energy into population centers where people were desperate for electricity. And so I think that that's probably the biggest misconception is that. The other thing is that there has been a misconception that the energy-only market didn't work. Okay, it's true. The market, in one sense, didn't work under this level of stress. But to assume that a capacity market would have been the thing that would save everything is a misconception. Because as we've seen in other parts of the country, even in a capacity market, they have had serious outages in the past. because. Let's face it, if you've got a lot of gas generation, for example, that's sitting on the grid that's being paid to be available, but it doesn't have gas, it has its own problems there. Even in this storm, we had problems where more fully integrated utilities to the east of Urqa, they had problems as well. I mean, it's in one sense, the thought that there's just a particular structure that's going to save the day, not not necessarily so. So I think that that is, is probably one of the biggest things. That's one of the biggest misconceptions.
2: Right. So what actions specifically did the state of Texas take to respond to this unprecedented challenge and to get the power back on for its people?
1: You know, there was absolutely every incentive that was out there at the time in order for generators to get online, for the gas production facilities to get online, for wind and solar to get online, for nuclear to get back online. $9,000 per megawatt hour pricing is a huge incentive. Now, granted, it's an incentive that doesn't work when you can't get back online because of, you know, you've got weatherization problems, you've got fuel problems, but there is no doubt about the fact that the, the incentives were there. And, you know, frankly, you know, everybody worked as hard as they possibly could. I was working with folks at ERCOT. I was working with folks at the Public Utility Commission on trying to get through some of the, you know, really in the weeds problems that needed to be addressed in real time to help bring the power back online. And, you know, I think everybody should be commended for the work that they did. The other thing that I think as much as people have wanted to blame ERCOT for what happened, the big thing that people should be thinking about and understanding is it could have been so much worse. Mm -hmm. I mean, we were four minutes from the grid going into blackout. And if that had happened, we would not be having this conversation today because they would probably still be working on trying to bring the grid back. The tragedy of people dying cannot be underestimated. The difficult decisions that they made at ERCOT in order to try to save the grid, kept thousands of people from dying.
2: So just to kind of wrap things up here, based on what we've discussed here today and for our listeners at home, what can lawmakers do to protect their power grids, to enhance their state's power infrastructure, and develop a flourishing and secure energy sector in their state's?
1: No, and I think that that's a great question. And those are, are debates that are going on in real time right now. I, I just got off of a very long conference call working with a legislator on, on those very issues. And I think we got to think about both near-term and long-term solutions. You know, near-term, one of the things that we learned in 2011 is the importance of weatherization and being sure not only that the generation resources are weatherized, but our fuel source is weatherized. We can have as much generation weatherization in place as we can afford, but if we don't have the fuel available as well, then we've got a problem. And I think that you know it was something that was clearly an issue in 2011, but it's really been highlighted in this instance, that we've got to be thinking much more holistically about energy in Texas. It's not just electricity standing separate from gas, for example. We really have to think about the whole picture. Weatherization is probably one of the quickest things that we can do. Another thing that really has to be thought about is communication, because there were a lot of problems with regard to people not understanding what was going on. Part of that is due to The fact that I think that this situation escalated into such a problem beyond what people were truly expecting. But the need for better communication so that, you know, people who have got Medical conditions who needed to be sure that they had electricity, and if there was a danger of them not having electricity, get to a place where they can be sure that they've got more protection. That's important. Letting people know where are secure places for energy, that's an important aspect. These are things that are being talked about right now. And another near-term solution, frankly, is demand response. You know, when you look at demand for electricity in our cup, for example, in the summer, residential air conditioning is 40 to 50 percent of the demand on a really hot day. And there's a great opportunity to continue to work on, you know, not making people uncomfortable by just turning off their air conditioning, but you can cycle it and really get a significant amount of reduction to the extent that you have got more robust efforts to to implement that. You've got large commercial and industrial customers that do have the ability to reduce their consumption. There's a cost to it, but if you set it up to where they are getting paid in a way that it makes it an economic solution for them, and we've got efforts like that are already underway, but I think more attention needs to be paid to that all of these different things can help very much in the near term longer term i think we really do need to be thinking about better understanding about the risk that there is with regard to supply and demand because with electricity you got to be sure that supply meets demand you know and this kind of goes into some better communication, a better understanding about where is the risk in the market and communicating that from ERCOT to the market so that businesses can make investment decisions with better information. You know, that's going to be a longer term issue. Frankly, it takes years to build new power plants. So we've got to take advantage of the short term things that we can do right now to help ensure greater reliability while we're looking at some of these longer-term issues. You know, the development of storage, I think, is going to be a big game-changer with regard to ERCOT. We need to be sure that we are removing impediments to that. And, you know, frankly, there is a lot of good work that has been done over the last couple of years to do just that. I'm working with a client right now that is building a 100-megawatt facility, and they've got Think about a gigawatt of additional storage that they are working on right now. So, I mean, there's a lot of changes that are going on. What we need to do is avoid the tendency towards knee-jerk reactions that actually undermine continued development in the ERCOT market because, you know, this system works, it can work. Being sure that we've got the right incentives for continued investment in the market is going to be critical.
0: This conversation has been so enlightening, Michael, and it's such an important issue. And thank you for sharing your um, insight into this problem and how we can move forward. Carly, before we go, for our listeners, what resources and tools concerning energy policy does ALEC have available to its members?
2: Absolutely. So in addition to the variety of resources and model policies that We've passed through the EEA Task Force, which all can be found on our website, by the way, at alec.org. We here at ALEC are actually gearing up to release the first installment of our brand new Energy Affordability publication, which will feature different policy analyses across the states, really focused on evaluating the affordability of energy. So this first installment looks at three specific energy related policies in the states and then compares these with the differences in electricity prices specifically in the states. So this really will be a great resource for legislators to be able to take a look at where their states fall in the rankings and also find ways in which that they can help improve the status of energy in their respective states as policymakers. So yeah, be on the lookout for
0: that. That's definitely something that members can look forward to. Michael, it has been a pleasure talking to you today. Thank you for sharing everything. Thank you for bringing the energy here to this podcast today. Thank you for coming on. I hope to hear from you soon.
1: Absolutely. And Matt and Carly, thank you all so much. It's been an absolute pleasure talking with you all today.
0: Thank you.
2: Thank you, Michael.
0: And thank you again to our listeners for tuning in to the Across the States podcast. We'll be back later this month with the Conservative Energy Network to talk more about energy policy. I'm your host, Matt Fisher, and thank you for listening in.
2: Thank you for listening to Across the States, the leading state-focused policy podcast presented by the American Legislative Exchange Council, the premier free market organization of and for legislators. To learn more about our work, or to make a tax-deductible donation, visit Alec.org. Tell us what you think on Facebook and Twitter at Alec States. The views and opinions expressed on across the states are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or
0: position of the American Legislative Exchange Council.